Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Jim, we finally made it to Friday, and to reward everyone, we've got three crazy martinis. And we should let everyone know that Jim is so dedicated to the podcast that he is literally joining us from the road as he heads out on vacation. But it's hands-free, everyone, so he's not a danger uh, to anyone. Jim, how are you? Doing good. Now, as usual, Greg, if I suddenly start yelling and swearing, it's not at you, and it's not that I'm that fired up about our topics for the day. It just means somebody was a bad driver. Um, but you know, not that I would ever like have car, you know, road rage in any way, shape, or form. Well, you're out of the D.C. metro area, so your odds of running into really bad drivers has gone substantially down, although it's not completely at zero. So good luck uh, through the course of the conversation. Let's start with Crazy Martini number one. The debates are set for the Democrats for their first uh, primary debates of the 2020 season. Of course, there are so many candidates. They're doing two different debates, back-to-back nights. There's a purple group and an orange group, which I'm not really sure why they've used those to distinguish, but we've now figured out who's going to be in the purple group and the orange group. The purple group is Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Senator Bennett, Marianne Williamson, Eric Swalwell, Kirsten Gillibrand, Andrew Yang, and John Hickenlooper. And then on the orange group, it's Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Julian Castro, Tim Ryan, Bill de Blasio, and Jay Inslee. And so if you're Elizabeth Warren, who has been steadily climbing the polls somewhat quietly here in the past few weeks, and you're now rivaling Bernie Sanders for second, Jim, you're pretty much at what the Republicans call the kiddie table debate here. Yeah, and the Democrats had said adamantly they did not want to do what the Republicans did in 2016. They had the primetime debates with the candidates who were tops in the polls. And uh, all the ones who were didn't make that threshold of 10 or 11 uh, were at the 6 p.m. one, the not ready for primetime players. And for reasons, you know, with, with a much smaller audience, nobody really ever broke out of this group, including my favorite Bobby Jindal, uh, Lindsey Graham, George Pataki, Rick Santorum. Uh, I think Huckabee bounced in between the two. And look, when you're in that category, it's very hard to get the attention to build and to break into that first tier. Democrats insisted they weren't going to do this. And yet I think most people would say that, look, we can all see from polling which candidates are strongest, which candidates are attracting the most attention. You'd probably put, obviously, Biden as the front runner. You'd put Sanders at number two. Warren is coming on. But, you know, generally you've had Kamala Harris in the top four. And then it's probably either Buttigieg or Beto. And actually Buttigieg has been rising. So four of your top five are all on one night. So it's been kind of fascinating to watch the reaction to that. I think this is bad news for Warren. My suspicion is when they measure the ratings for this whole thing, people will tune into the first one because, hey, it's the first Democratic presidential debate. And they'll probably sit through the first round of questioning. But by the time they get to the eighth or ninth candidate saying more or less the same answer to the same question, my suspicion is you'll see people suddenly start changing the channel, maybe losing interest, maybe realizing I don't need to hear what you and I call the asterisk the other day. So that's the good news for Warren, is that it's her and a bunch of nobodies. This is the debate equivalent of preseason football, Greg. You're really glad to see the sport you love back, but in the end, you realize it's not the same quality. It's not the same kind of players you're used to watching. 
and most of these people aren't going to be around for very long. The big deal is going to be the next night, and I think obviously we were all expecting Bernie's going to go after Biden. I think if Kamala Harris still belongs first tier, I think Buttigieg obviously is the one guy who's broken out from obscurity. So my suspicion is that we'll actually be talking about what happens on the second night. I don't know if even if Elizabeth Warren has a great night on the first night, how much that will carry over. My other sneaking suspicion is that at the end of the first two nights of debating, people will be really ready for them to thin out the herd through predators, so to speak. <laughs> the great culling will advance. The other thing also maybe we should mention is that Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, did not make the cut. Former Senator Mike Gravel, Mayor Andrew Messick of Florida, and Seth Moulton. But I'm very proud of myself for remembering all of them, Greg, without my notes in front of me. So Seth Moulton, congressman, did not make it from Massachusetts, did not make it either. And for these guys, you can safely say, look, if you're not in the first debate, you're not likely to break out and make it into the future debates. But I do think the four of them should just meet outside the venue and then just live stream them arguing with each other or something like that. You're in Iowa, guys. Enjoy the ride. Messam, Bullock, who else was in there? Uh, Moulton. Moulton and Gravel. And Gravel. You got beat out by Eric Swalwell. Sit on that this weekend. This could be good or bad for Warren. She's not up there with the upper tier, obviously. But as we learned from the Republican debates back in 2016, just because you're on the stage doesn't mean you get to talk a lot if you're way off in the wings there, depending on how you're doing in the polling. So she's probably going to get more time to talk than just about anyone else on stage. But she's also going to be the target of everybody else on that stage. Yeah, the name of the game is to punch up unless you're the front runner. Amongst the people on that crowd, she's the front runner. Now, the only other quote-unquote big name you could say that's in that orange night, the, the first night debate would be Beto or Rourke. Greg, do you think we're going to get the professor lecturing young student Beto for not doing his homework on the issues? <laughs> she certainly could, because I guarantee you he hasn't. All right, let's move on to our second crazy martini now, Jim. And you talked about this quite a bit in the morning jolt earlier this week. Joe Biden, with his big campaign rollout in Iowa this week, talked about a lot of different things, said President Trump is literally, literally an existential threat. We kind of knew that was coming. But he also talked about an issue that is very sincerely near and dear to his heart, given the tragedy that befell his son, Beau, and that is the fight against cancer. But he didn't just vow to fight cancer. He vowed to beat cancer. Here's how he explained it. You know, people come up to you and tell you, I understand if you lose a, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a family member. And, uh, um, and lots of times you feel like saying, you know, they say, I know how you feel. And if they hadn't, you look at them, you, you know they mean well, but you say, you have no idea how I feel. But when it happens to you, you know. That's why I've uh, worked so hard in my career to make sure that... Uh, I promise you, uh, if I'm elected president, you're going to see the single most important thing that changes America is we're going to cure cancer. We're going to cure cancer. We're not just going to fight cancer and make progress against cancer. We hope he's right, regardless of who's elected president, Jim. But that's an awfully bold proclamation from someone whose main objective is to provide more money for the research. But the craziness didn't stop there. The issue was brought up on The View. Megan McCain, understandably very passionate about this as well, having lost her father less than a year ago to brain cancer. So she talked about how excited she was that Biden is making this a big part of the campaign. But then Joy Behar thought of a really interesting reason about why Biden might not succeed. To that statement, I 
I would say that curing cancer is going to be much more difficult when there's so much climate change and pollutants in the environment because a lot of cancer is environmentally caused. And this president rolls back anything that will clean the air. I just so like they're working against each other if they don't also uh, clean up the emissions. If they don't know what causes yeah. brain cancer for whatever it's no. private. Thank you, Megan, for dropping that in, that they really don't know what causes brain cancer. Now, Jim, we know certain circumstances where the environment will lead to cancerous issues. We just saw the big dust-up with John Stewart and the 9-11 responders, and obviously the toxicity there was a factor, and maybe in some smoggy areas it contributes as well. But the idea that climate change in general is going to be the big stumbling block to actual research here is pretty ludicrous, as well as is Biden's proclamation that it's going to happen for sure if he's elected. Yeah, you know, Greg, it was about two weeks ago, New York Times Magazine declared that The View had become the single most important television show in politics. And I don't know about you, Greg, I wept for our republic upon reading that, because it's kind of fascinating to watch. You know, look, I have as much respect for Meghan McCain as anyone else. Let's just say certain other folks around the table who are famous for being famous don't do the homework, don't do the research, and it's just a bunch of ladies sitting around offering the first thing that pops into their heads. If you've ever found yourself, by golly, why can't they discover a cure for cancer? I would ask you just please Google it. I linked to a couple of useful things in the morning jolt this week and in the corner. So first of all, there are more than 100 types of cancer. So you say, why can't they cure cancer? Well, the good news is they've made really remarkable breakthroughs, both in terms of surgery, in terms of radiation, in terms of chemotherapy. Immunotherapy is opening up a whole bunch of new doors. There are good medical sites that will try to explain this in layman's terms. But the single biggest thing, look, what is cancer? Is it often involves cell growth. And the cells are growing at a very rapid pace. And up until a couple of years ago, they kind of figured, okay, if you know how to beat a type of cell in the tumor, you probably should work. And they found themselves not having as much success as they expected to. Well, it turns out even within the same tumor, those cells are evolving, they're changing, they're reproducing. And each time they grow, they change. So they took four different samples from the same tumor and found four different types of cells. The short answer is cancer is a target. It's always a moving target. The cells are always changing. Now, they're getting much better at projecting at how the cells are going to change. And obviously, the radiation and chemotherapy and things like that that work against one may work for a broad swath of those cells. But the short answer is this is difficult. Everybody's physiology is different. And so it's one of those things where, like, ah, you know, if we just spend a little more money, we'll get the answers. It's not that. And it's not a lack of willpower. It's not a lack of people don't want to. It's not that the pharmaceutical companies are greedy. There is no ill intent in any of these parts. This is just a really challenging medical riddle to solve. And so I think that's something to keep in mind when you talk about these sorts of things. By the way, the amount of research money to the National Cancer Institute has gone up every year for the last seven years. It's up $500 million from about like 2011 or so. I don't think you can make the argument that the reason we don't have a cure for cancer is a lack of funding. Now, look, if you want to donate to additional cancer research, God bless you. Go right ahead. Every little bit can help and a lot. But we have had a lot of really encouraging signs in recent years. So maybe we are on the verge of a breakthrough. But that's not the sort of thing a presidential candidate can argue. I'm really not convinced that the research will slow down because of global warming. I think they just adjust the thermostat in the lab. I think we'll be fine. So it's deeply kind of frustrating to see these kinds of politicians making promises that they really should know. It's beyond their capacity to keep it. No, absolutely right. And then Joy Behar essentially blaming Trump if cancer is not cured during the Biden administration, if there even is a Biden administration, is is uh, pretty absurd as well. So, all right. Also, did, did the ocean stop rising? <laughs> Wasn't that the promise of the last guy? 
All right, let's move on to our final crazy martini. And as Bill de Blasio crams for his spot on the stage for the orange debate against Elizabeth Warren and all the other asterisks, he's also in the midst of a major political brawl with Al Sharpton in New York City. Politico has the story. A proposed ban on menthol cigarettes in New York City appears stalled amid accusations of racism in a fight that has pitted public health officials and Mayor Bill de Blasio against one of the most prominent black leaders in New York, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Advocates, public health officials, the mayor, and First Lady Shirlane McRae have vocally advocated for Council Bill Intro 1345, which is designed to curb disproportionate smoking rates in the black community. The fight could prove a flashpoint, though, for both Sharpton and de Blasio, because for the last six months, the National Action Network, which was founded and led by Sharpton, testified against the measure. The mayor is running for the Democratic presidential nomination while suffering from low approval ratings at home and would not welcome a fight with a power broker of Sharpton's caliber, despite enjoying longstanding support among a majority of black city voters. But the issue is an awkward one for Sharpton as well, who is making the argument that criminalizing menthol cigarettes could lead to the unfair targeting of black smokers. Plenty of black leaders see the health dangers posed by the cigarettes as a greater threat than police scrutiny and have accused Sharpton of being a paid shill for big tobacco. His stance may not square with younger, more progressive leaders in the black community. So, Jim, we talked just yesterday about popping the popcorn and watching people we don't particularly care for politically duke it out and sling mud at each other. This certainly falls into that category. Yeah, you know, Greg, I see a fight between Bill de Blasio and Al Sharpton the way I saw that Super Bowl between the Oakland Raiders and Tampa Bay Buccaneers a couple years ago. I just root for injuries. As much damage as they can inflict on each other is terrific. The other thing that's kind of fascinating about this is that I don't smoke, don't particularly like the smell of cigarette smoke. I've taught my boys not to smoke. I very strongly discourage it, but I really think this creeping effort to effectively criminalize it, or do you know, um, I, I think it will eventually will prove uh, counterproductive. I think we've seen people say, oh, you know, we can raise taxes on cigarettes and that will take care of the problem. And of course, you end up with a lot of people basically creating a black market for cigarettes, people who will produce them and work around state laws or import them from other states and sell them under the table, so to speak, so they don't have to pay the state taxes on cigarettes. By the way, I say all this while driving through North Carolina. If you hear people cheering in the background for my uh, argument that people should be free to smoke cigarettes, that's probably what that is. The other oddity of all this, Greg, is you realize that the same people who are pushing for raising the aid for purchase tobacco products to consume tobacco products they want to ban vaping amongst the young people, all of that, are also the same people who argue the war on drugs has been a failure. <laughs> so, oh, it's a marijuana cigarette. Oh, that's fine. Okay, go ahead, kids. That's okay. That's no big deal. But in the tobacco, man, we're going to come down on you like a, like a ton of bricks. Strikes me as a bit of a contradiction. I think our experience is prohibition and, you know, the arguments that the drug war had a lot of unwanted consequences in terms of criminalization, incarcerization, and lack of treatment options, etc., Look, the ball has moved in a certain direction on that policy issue over the last couple of years. I don't quite understand why you do the exact opposite for the reverse for tobacco. Maybe one of the issues that make this particularly fraught an issue in the New York City area was Eric Garner, the African-American man who ended up being inadvertently, or some might say deliberately, strangled by the police, was under arrest for selling loose cigarettes. He had purchased cigarettes and was selling them on a street corner. People might say, oh, who cares about selling cigarettes and all that stuff? Well, in this case, this guy simply violating not having a license for selling tobacco ended up having deadly consequences for them. So you can kind of see how this might be a very fraught issue in the African-American community in New York City. De Blasio's wrong on this. Kind of hard to root for Al Sharpton. Hopefully the best case scenario is that everybody's free to make their own choices. 
And uh, both of these guys end up suffering damage to their political reputations, to the extent they still have political reputations to save. <laughs> Having said that, Greg, I did, right before we came on air, I did figure out the one way de Blasio could do really well on the debate Wednesday night. What? Radical animal rights activists end up releasing a whole bunch of groundhogs onto the stage, <laughs> and they run into the crowd, and everybody starts panicking, and then the world will be glad that Bill de Blasio is there as one by one he simply wipes out all of those groundhogs. <laughs> That's the niche. You need a niche when you're one of 20. So, uh, Jim, very well said. I'm glad you brought up Eric Gardner. I think that's an important part of this debate that's going on specifically in New York City. If we were a fictional podcast, I would explain that you're rolling through Winston-Salem, North Carolina right now as we have this conversation. I don't believe that's the case, but it would make for a great setting as we have this conversation. There there are farms out the window as we go by. Actually, I'm on my way to meet with Nick Naylor of the Academy for Tobacco Studies. (laughs) If you haven't seen Thank You for Smoking, that's a reference to that novel and movie from uh, Christopher Buckley. Jim, you are officially released on vacation. Have a fantastic time with your family, and we'll uh, reconvene a week from Monday. Have a great time. See you in a week, Greg. Take care. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today, and be sure to tune in again next week. Even though Jim's out, we will still have a podcast on the Three Martini Lunch.